you are not lacking strength to obey. God gives you incredible power, resurrection power, life reinvigorating power. He raised his son from the dead and that same power he gives to every single believer so as to walk in a path of obedience. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part three of A Prayer to Live By from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, in which the Apostle Paul prays for the Christians at Ephesus, who Paul says are already rich in every spiritual blessing bestowed upon them by God the Father in Jesus Christ. Then, through his prayer, Paul instructs these first century Christians on the power given to them, power they will need to obey the Lord's significant commands before a watching world, commands that are impossible to keep in their own might. So what does such power look like and where can it be found? Let's consider these questions as we hear part three of Pastor Paul's six-part series called A Prayer to Live By. So we began last week and covered the first half of Paul's prayer. And at the very outset, I tried to highlight the problem of understanding what it is that you ought to pray for somebody who has everything. That was the problem that I opened with because in the eulogy, the first few verses of chapter 1, Paul labors to communicate to the Ephesians that they lack nothing. They have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places God has not withheld from them any spiritual blessing that he has to give. So when it comes to his prayer, the question arises, what then do you pray for such a person? And that is true of all Christians. The eulogy in chapter 1 is true not just of the Ephesians in Ephesus, but for all Christians, those who are in Christ have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Therefore, this prayer becomes very instructive for us. We learn through this prayer how we ought to go about praying for one another. And you'll remember what Paul prayed for the Ephesians is that they would know more of God and of his gospel. That, in summary, is Paul's prayer for the Christians in Ephesus who lack nothing that they would apprehend more of what they have. His prayer is that they would keep in focus both the gift and the giver, They would not separate the two and focus only on the gospel, but understand that it comes from a good God. And as they apprehend both, they would grow in their praise of him, and they would be yet further equipped to walk in a manner that honors him. That's a summary of last week and the first half of the prayer. And just to pause there before we go on to make a simple observation, and that is that you can never graduate beyond the gospel. Just as I've been thinking again on this prayer this week, it struck me, and I think worth, it is worth mentioning, you can never graduate beyond the gospel. 
Remember, these Christians in Ephesus were flourishing. They were spiritually mature. Paul writes to them and says, I've heard about your love for one another and your steadfastness in the faith. They're not backsliding. They're not weak. They're not immature. He's not addressing problems within the church. They are flourishing. And to those Christians, Paul says, I pray that you would know more of God and of his gospel. If Paul finds cause to say such a prayer for these Christians, the implication is that neither you nor I can ever graduate beyond the gospel. If God saved you this morning, your responsibility tomorrow is to wake up, to open his word, to study the truth concerning God and his gospel, and to rehearse those truths to yourself. If God saved you 50 years ago, your responsibility tomorrow is to open up his word, to study God, to study his gospel, and to rehearse those truths to yourself. In that respect, the Christian life is very simple. To be found faithful is to be, to be found doing very simple things over and over again. You can never grow bored of the gospel. You can never think that you've got beyond it and you don't need to return to it. You need to ever remember in your mind that God saves people through the gospel and he sanctifies people through the gospel. It is always the recipe by which God accomplishes his work. And so wherever you are at in your faith, however strong you are, whatever degree of flourishing the Lord has allowed you by his grace, you cannot get beyond the gospel. The responsibility that we all have is to keep returning to the message of our salvation, and to the God who gives that salvation. Now what Paul then does in his prayer is he gives what I would reference as a theology of power. In verse 20 and following, he speaks at length about the strength that he references in verse 19. He unpacks for us a little bit more of the power that is available to us as Christians through the gospel. So just by way of recap, as Paul has prayed that we would know more of God, he then says, in order that you would remember certain things about who you are, the, the calling you receive, those are past realities, the glorious inheritance that God has in you, that's the future hope we have, And then towards the end of verse 19, he settles on the immediate reality of our salvation, namely the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So just think about that logic. He says, what I want you to know as you fix your eyes on God is your past calling, your future hope. And then he comes to present-day realities. He doesn't say past calling, present-day realities, future hope. But rather, the intentional order in which he places these truths is past, future, and then present. And it's on the present realities that Paul starts to unpack more of the theological profundity that comes to us by way of the gospel. And that is what we need to study tonight, the theology of power that Paul gives us that is ours in Christ. But before we do, it is worth asking the question of why. Why does Paul frame his prayer in that way 
Why does he go to the past and then to the future and then to come to the present? And then why does he unpack the present of the three realities of our salvation? Why does he unpack the present more than any? Why is Paul concerned to give us this excursus on God's power? We've mentioned a number of times that the primary theological backdrop to this whole letter is the occult, the Artemis cult in particular, that was prevalent in Ephesus at the time. This enormous temple that was right there in the city and most likely thousands of people going to worship the goddess Artemis in the temple. And as we've seen in Acts chapter 19, that was beginning to cause some problems for the church. They were being faithful to the gospel, and as people were converting to this new way, people who were getting their trade from the Artemis cult were disgruntled. And so there was pressure being placed on the church. We've discussed that, and apart from the reality of the Artemis cult, it would be worth mentioning in addition that Paul, apart from any pressures that they may have been feeling externally, Paul's desire is that these Christians would walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling in which they had received. Completely independent of any of the pressures that they may have been feeling, there's no reason to think that as Paul had left them, that those pressures had died down, most likely had only increased. Apart from that, Paul desires them to live in a manner that is obedient to the word. And evidence of this is simply the observation that after three chapters, Paul turns a corner in this letter and starts to give to them the implications of this great gospel. You know that halfway through Ephesians, Paul turns a corner in his argument and the emphasis shifts from the theological realities of the gospel to the responsibilities that rest on the believer's shoulders. He starts to issue imperatives to the believers, one after another for three chapters. And independent of any pressure they may have been feeling from all of the folks involved in the the cult life of Ephesus, Paul says, you guys need to obey. You have to live in a manner that is worthy of the calling that you have received. And the imperatives that he gives are by no means light. You've read them. It's in Ephesians that we find the command given to husbands to love their wives how as Christ loved the church, laying himself down for her. That's not a light command. It's not an easy command to obey. Any husband that takes seriously the word of God knows The difficulties involved in laying down your life in a daily manner for the benefit, for the spiritual well-being of your spouse. We mustn't take that command flippantly. To take it seriously places on each and every husband a weighty responsibility in the Lord. It's in Ephesians that Paul says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That is not a light command. That is a weighty imperative 
The word of God, inspired, inerrant, is to be authoritative over your lives each and every day. So for any God-fearing wife, she is to submit to her husband as to the Lord. And that is not easy. It's in Ephesians that Paul says, children, obey your parents. It's not easy. It's not to be taken lightly. These are serious and weighty commands that come from God. And as the theology of that particular text shows us, in heeding these commands, we portray eternal realities that are true of God and his son and the church. Truly understood, the imperatives that come through this letter start to showcase the gospel to a watching world. So they are by no means light. They are to be taken seriously. And I believe that the reason Paul rests in his prayer on the present realities of our faith, namely the power that has been made available to us in Christ, is because he wants us to know especially that God has equipped us to live an obedient life. And so it is that as we apprehend the power that is available to us, so we may be found faithful obeying the commands of Scripture. Now, as we think through these few verses this evening, we can divide Paul's argument into two parts. In the first, we may ask, what does this power look like? And in the second half, where can it be found? What does this power look like? Where can this power be found? And Paul begins by saying, backing up to verse 19, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So we can stop there and observe that the first thing Paul says about the power that has been made available to us as believers is that it is the same power that God exercised when he raised his son from the dead. It is the same power that God exercised in raising Christ from the dead. Jesus was a man. He was fully God and fully man. Both are true. We can tend to focus at times almost exclusively on his deity. Often we would do well to think more upon his humanity. And I think such is a case where we benefit from considering his humanity. Jesus had a real fleshly human heart. It beat inside his chest just like yours does. Jesus had real human bones. Jesus had fingers. He had hair. He was a man. At the end of his life, as he was nailed to a cross, his heart stopped beating. Jesus died. The centurion thrust a spear into his side. Water and blood issued out. And you can read medical reports that testify that that is evidence that he was dead. The Gospels attest to his real, actual, physical death. 
Many at that time tried to argue to the contrary. They did not want to concede the reality of his resurrection. And so one thing they tried to do is to argue he didn't actually die. Jesus died on the cross. They took him down. They wrapped up his body and they put him in a tomb. If you go to Israel today, they know with quite a high degree of certainty where that tomb would have been. There are many, many things to see in Israel, as you can imagine, and all of them come with a level of uncertainty. You can do a tour and your tour guide will tell you we're not quite sure, but we think this is where such and such happened. As it relates to Jesus' death on the cross and his burial, we have a very high degree of certainty, which means you can go today to the old city and see the place where most likely Jesus hung on a cross. And not far from it, very, very close, is the place where most likely he was buried. If you go there at any point during the day, as you can imagine, there are many, many, many people, many crowds. So I got up and went at 6 a.m. And I walked through the streets of the old city. And I went to the place where Jesus most likely hung on the cross. And then just a few feet away, really, went and stood where most likely he had been buried. And there was no one there. That was the beauty of going so early in the morning. I was the only person there. And I just stood there and thought about the reality of Jesus' death. And you can't imagine the sorrow. I don't think we can imagine the sorrow of the disciples who had been with him for three years, growing in their awareness of who this man really was, seeing him in his humanity, and at the same time slowly apprehending his deity, having confessed and arrived at the conclusion that he indeed is the one who we have been waiting for to then see his life end. They were in no doubt, our Savior died today. And then to imagine the excitement when they went back to the tomb and he wasn't there. To imagine the excitement when they went back to the tomb and an angel was waiting for them so as to say, you are looking in the wrong place. Why do you look for the living amongst the dead? The fulcrum that moves from one picture of immense sorrow to one of incredible joy is God's power. That is the pivot point that moves us from understanding Jesus to have died a real physical death to the point where his real human heart began to beat again. To the point where his eyes opened and he stood up. He wasn't weak. He bore the scars of his crucifixion, but he was not weak in that moment, but more full of life than ever before, he emerged from that tomb in his resurrected body. And the the fulcrum, the catalyst that moves us from the reality of his death to the reality of his resurrection is the power of God. And what Paul says to us here this evening is that that same power, not a different power, 
That same power is the power that has been made available to you in the gospel. That same power is available to you each and every day so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you had received. You are not lacking strength to obey. God gives you incredible power, resurrection power, life reinvigorating power. He raised his son from the dead and that same power he gives to every single believer so as to walk in a path of obedience. And if that were not enough, Paul says more about this power. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places... Far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's a mouthful. Paul really wants us to know about this power. He says the power that is available to you is the same power that was exercised by God when he raised his son from the dead and when he seated his son on high. So Paul is shifting here from the theology of the resurrection to the theology of the ascension. Christ walked on this earth for many days after his resurrection, and then another extraordinary display of power was made manifest as he ascended into the heavens. And perhaps we struggle to get our mind around the power of the ascension. We're very familiar with death and its finality. We understand intuitively the power that must have been exercised as Christ was raised from the dead. Perhaps we struggle a little bit more with understanding exactly the power that God exercised in raising him to his right hand. But just consider this briefly. Each and every one of us in our sin strives for our own self-exaltation. We all understand on some level the difficulties involved in exalting someone because we all strive in our sin to exalt ourselves. That is human nature. We strive for that exaltation and what we learn most often the hard way is that we are utterly incapable of exalting ourselves. God thwarts your efforts. Praise him that he thwarts your efforts. And when society does exalt a mere human, we were never designed to be exalted. We quickly see that they can't cope with being in such a place of prominence. If somebody should reach any sense of exaltation in this earthly life, we quickly see the power in a negative way of being in such a position. People don't do well when they're so elevated. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. In his message today, Pastor Paul explains what the Apostle Paul says about the power of God made available to his believers for their obedience. That same power God exercised when he raised his son from the dead. For this reason, Paul encourages us to remember that believers do not lack strength to obey Christ before a watching world. God has given his believers in Christ life-invigorating power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead so they can walk in the path of obedience. 
believers lack nothing in the gospel. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twist, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you'd like to hear more about Jesus Christ and His glorious gospel, visit our website, timelesstruthtoday.org. Select Broadcasts for a free archive of Pastor Paul's teachings. As we approach the weekend, remember, if you don't have a local church to attend, we'd welcome you to worship with us at 1030 a.m. every Sunday at 200 West Bethany Court in Thousand Oaks. Come Monday, we're into part four of our series, A Prayer to Live By. Hope you can join us then. I'm Matt Williams. Have a great weekend, and thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.